passage on which the teaching is based this morning comes from Matthew chapter 19. If you could open up to that text, it'll be helpful to you to have it open in front of you. I do want to uh, say thank you to all those who showed up yesterday for our celebration of the life of Sam Jennings. Um, <clears throat> that was a tough loss. Kurt, t- Kurt Presley uh, said yesterday in the funeral that there are some funerals that are easy, and that one was easy because we knew exactly what to expect from uh, sweet Sam, but we also miss him. He, uh, he, he was a large piece of, of encouragement to me, as many of you are on Sunday mornings, and just wanted to say thank you for all of your support during that time. Matthew chapter 19, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. As we say here, this is the word of the Lord. So Eric Finkel uh, is a psychologist and marriage scholar at Northwestern University up in Chicago. And about six years ago, he, he wrote a, a piece for the New York Times where he was talking about uh, the, the way in which American marriage and family life has kind of uh, morphed over the years into these discernible phases. He argues that in the 1800, early 1800s, you had an idea of what he might call institutional marriage. Uh, this was the idea that marriage was fundamentally for uh, survival, uh, production, protection, Uh, Emotional connection may have been nice, but it certainly wasn't essential. But he said somewhere around the late 1800s, really all the way up until maybe the 1960s in American life, what reigned then was what he called companionate marriage. This is when marriage sort of centered on this idea of intimate needs, such as love and children uh, and experiencing a fulfilling sex life or whatever. But since the 1960s, Finkel argues, that since that time, the dominant family idea has been what he calls the self-expressive marriage. This is, Americans, he writes, now look to marriage increasingly for self-discovery, self-esteem, and personal growth. You've heard me talk about this before from the pulpit here, that the dominant philosophy of our day is what some uh, philosophers call expressive individualism where the guiding ideal in life is only to be found in discovering who my authentic self is and then sort of insisting that those around me respect that identity. Okay, so you don't, you don't have to be a social scientist to see that when Jesus starts talking for the only valid reasons to end this foundational relationship of marriage, <clears throat> it's going to look almost insane to the culture around us, for sure. So the question is, well, then why do it? Why would Jesus want to waste his breath? Well, please remember that we're in a portion of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is unpacking what we've called the upside-down nature of his kingdom that he's trying to establish in the world. The world in which Jesus is ruling, you're not supposed to go with your gut. (laughs) 
Don't follow your heart or your dreams in Jesus' thing. As a matter of fact, if you want to gain honor from people, don't lord it over them, but actually serve them. He's going to say, don't seek revenge from people and pay them back for what they've done, but rather forgive them. He'll go on to say that my people don't make the attainment of money their central goal in life. Actually, they seek to give it away. It's a very counterintuitive way of thinking about your life. Okay, so here we are in this context of a culture in which almost every one of us have been very efficiently catechized, have we not? By almost every single media message coming to us that says at least one of three things, often three at the same time. Number one, always and only be true to yourself. Number two, in the end, you have to do what makes you happy. And number three, nobody has, anybody's, nobody has the right to tell anybody what's right or what's wrong. I promise you, the last movie that you watched had that as the moral of its story. The last song that you had on repeat was reinforcing this. The last hour that you spent on TikTok was absolutely trying to drive this message home again and again. Our culture is saturated with these messages. But here's where I think Jesus' words are fascinating for us. Because what he's saying, as it were, is that a system that is built upon those aforementioned principles is actually not going to be freeing at all. On the contrary, it's radically oppressive. Because if everyone is simply doing what's right in their own eyes, and there is no one who is immune from the whims of victimizers all around them, and on the list of the most vulnerable institutions occupied by very vulnerable people is marriage. Marriage, Jesus knows, is going to be fraught with the danger for those who are married precisely because they've pledged themselves to another person. If you really think about it, love really is nothing more than vulnerability, if you really can consider it. And so Matthew decides to sort of pick out this very intense interaction Jesus has with the uh, religious elite of his day on a topic that shows that when he arrives, the hero in our story is trying to come in and say, I'm here to protect the vulnerable, wherever they might find. So three ideas to unpack this this morning. I'm going to look at the text, try to draw a principle from the text, and then find some way in which we can put some practical ideas to practice, okay? Number one, let's dive into the text first, because it's really important to see what Jesus is and is not saying here. Uh, because the Pharisees, probably intimidated by these large crowds that are following Jesus around, <clears throat> they decide that they want, as it says in verse 3, to test him. That word literally means to trick him. Uh, they're trying to embarrass him. So they decide to ping Jesus regarding a contemporary controversial issue that, of course, was much discussed during the time of Jesus' ministry, and that was the topic of divorce. Here's what they're asking. Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, bear with me. It's actually not apparent when you read it without the historical background. But according to, really, a lot of ancient Near Eastern sources, there was a particular brand of divorce that was being peddled during that time that was known as an any cause divorce. Pharisees were sort of taking their cue from their own law books when they were quoting from Deuteronomy 24.1, which says this, Moses said, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, let him write her a certificate of divorce, put it in her hand and send her out of the house. That's what they were booting off of. So the question became, all right, <laughs> what constitutes indecency in the spouse? Well, it turns out there were two schools of thought, which, interestingly, 
lay out in remarkably familiar categories, right? There, there was a liberal approach and there was a conservative approach. For instance, let's take the conservative first. Rabbi Shemai apparently was the one who said, look, by indecency, Moses means only sexual indecency. Therefore, the only valid reason to divorce is when someone has been sexually unfaithful. That's the Shammai conservative school. But on the other side of the argument was Rabbi Hillel. Hillel was more uh, progressive in his views. He basically said indecent could mean just about anything that you didn't like about her. Uh, maybe she has indecent behavior. Maybe uh, she has indecent cooking skills or something. Don't laugh. We actually, we actually have in record <clears throat> a quote from Hillel where he says, if she consistently burns the bread, you may divorce her. Okay, note to self. Um, but you see where the Pharisees are going with this, right? They're trying to embroil Jesus on one side of the controversy or the other, other to try to say he's just not that clever after all. He's just here on behalf of one camp. In other words, if, it's almost as if they're trying to caricature someone as liberal or conservative uh, and therefore sort of make him be able to be pigeonholed and, and weaker in the eyes of the crowds. <laughs> Sound familiar to anybody? Uh, it happens all the time in contemporary politics. But don't you also see that those battle lines kind of fall out in the same way in which the way in which contemporary Christians think about divorce as well, right? Think about the two sides. On the one hand, my... My guess is if you walked up to your average you know, person on the street to ask them about divorce, they would say something to the effect of, well, yes, divorce is hard and bad, but you know what? It's not that big a deal. People grow apart. People fall out of love. It happens, whatever. Which, of course, is <laughs> it, it can be amazingly dismissive, by the way, of the wreckage that divorce costs people, not just emotionally in their own psyches, but actually also in how much it can be used to victimize children as well. <clears throat> I do realize that oftentimes there's, there's ways in which divorcing parents will console themselves in saying things like, well, I would rather my child grow up in a single parent home than in a home where there was no love. The problem with that is, though, the children are saying just the opposite. Um, uh, children are looking and saying, look, all I wanted was for my parents to stay together. Uh, consult um, Judith Wallerstein in a, uh, the unexpected legacy of divorce for more on that topic. But that's your sort of average man on the street of sort of a dismissive view of, of divorce. However, there's a conservative version, is there not? <clears throat> These are religious people who are aware of, after a slightly dubious translation of a place in Malachi, God hates divorce. They believe, therefore, divorce is tantamount to the worst thing that you can be involved in and therefore to be ex uh, avoided at all costs including circumstances where even the physical well-being of one's spouse might be threatened. This is religious people's version of this all the time, and there's probably no way to even count how much physical damage has been done to spouses in abusive marriages. And then not even to, to count for the guilt and shame that some feel for getting divorced even when they had biblical warrant to do so. Okay, so Jesus is trying to respond to these two camps. On the one hand, he looks in, well, look at verse 4 through 6. He says, basically, I'm coming out somewhat on the side of the Hillel school. That this any cause divorce, casual divorce for any cause is an aberration. That's his principle. That's an aberration. Why? Because from creation, God made marriage to be a one flesh union of souls. 
I'm so glad that we're having Ricky Jones come and preach to us here in a few weeks for our missions conference because he's got a great sermon on divorce where he basically says this. He's like, look, marriage is a covenant where you become one flesh and one person. And what that means is you become physically vulnerable to that person, but literally so on the marriage bed if you think about it. You become psychologically vulnerable to that person because this person now can affect me emotionally, can they not? Your happiness even is vulnerable at this point because now your happiness is tied up in this other person's happiness. And what all this means is, is divorce, Jesus is saying, is an act of violence. It's an amputation. And in the same way that there is a sore place after someone has something amputated, divorce does the same thing to people's souls. It's incredibly powerful. Okay, that's the text. Let's dive into the principle here. What is the principle behind which Jesus uh, uh, talks about this position? Well, you really don't see it until you see the Pharisees' reaction, do you? Look at what they say there in, in verse 7. Because they basically peg Jesus. They're like, oh, okay, now we know who you are. You're a Moses hater. So then they say this in verse 7. Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Oh, that's such classic manipulation on the part of the Pharisees. They know what they're doing. Because if you go back to Deuteronomy 24, <laughs> Moses didn't command that they divorce. He simply allowed it. Why? Well, Jesus tells you the answer. <laughs> because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But you see how convenient it is to sort of say that he commanded it. That way we got a divorce because Moses told us to. And Jesus is like, no, no. He's talking about a worst case scenario there. There's a great illustration I dug it by N.T. Wright, who's trying to show how it was the Pharisees are twisting scripture. <laughs> and he says this about how Jesus reverses the tables. He goes, look, just as a car is made to drive safely on the road, not skid around colliding with other cars, so marriage was made to be a partnership of one woman and one man for life not something that could be split up and reassembled whenever a person wanted it. Moses didn't say, as it were, when you drive your car, this is how to have an accident. Rather, he says, when you drive your car, take care not to have an accident, but tragically, if an accident occurs, here's how to deal with it. Do you see the point? Moses was trying to deal with just how vulnerable a woman would have been had a man just up and decided one day, it's like, well, you know, I don't want to be married to you anymore. Bye-bye. Uh, you've been indecent because you burned, you burned the bread or whatever. Off he goes. But Moses is saying you leave her vulnerable because you can't then come back a month, years later, and be like, I'm claiming my property of my wife again. So you had to provide a certificate, he said. That was there to protect her. And Jesus is reaffirming the exact same thing. So no, we're not out there saying, hey, let's go out and wreck our cars of marriage. He's trying to regulate the car wrecks. In other words, we're trying to come in and deal with the selfishness in the heart of every marriage. Okay, a couple observations we can make about this before we move to some applications. The first one is this. I think what Jesus is saying is he's trying to keep people from divorcing for dumb reasons. Let me think about this for a second. Jesus is trying to keep, I'm, 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 I'm moved by this sentence, Jesus is trying to keep us and ha from having our life defined by our mistakes. Is that not gracious of our Lord, who is trying to put in principles around us to keep us from being defined by our dumbest mistakes? And so therefore, without giving a marriage a chance to recover, we'll talk a little bit about that at the end, is it possible that you might be inviting things, worse things in your life that you just can't see at the time in which you're there? 
Is that a fair question? You know, one of the saddest conversations I ever had, my wife and I did it, but we're officiants at a tons of weddings that we did when we were in campus ministry. And I remember a, one of the hardest conversations I ever had with a man at his daughter's funeral who said, you know, when I left my little girl's um, wife so many years ago when she was little, I did not think about the fact that there was going to be another man that she would ask to walk her down the aisle of her wedding, namely her stepdaddy. And I was like, ouch. You see, he couldn't see. In the moment, he could not see that there was a worse pain in the future awaiting him, possibly know what he was going through at the time. It reminded me of that story about a guy by the name of Roy Raymond. You've probably never heard of him, but he was a, an American businessman who owned a little lingerie company in San Francisco that we call Victoria's Secret. Well, in 1982, fearing that he couldn't take the company to the next level, he sold it. Ready for how much? One million dollars. And that included also their online catalog as well. Well, you can imagine what happened as that company began to experience the meteoric growth and success that it had, at least financially so, leading 10 years later to his jumping off of the Golden Gate Bridge and committing suicide from the depression he had from so many business failures. She was saying he couldn't see what was out there in the future. And that's what Jesus is saying. You may not be able to see this, but my very strident rules that I'm giving for keeping a marriage from breaking up is so that you are not vulnerable to your present impatient self and a potential heartache that you can't see because you want out of your marriage so badly. He gets it. So that, I think, is the first sort of application. The second sort of idea is, it comes in this thing. But, and we so often miss this. We, meaning the people that would make it to church on a Sunday morning, miss this. Jesus allows divorce. He does. This fact gets missed by many conservative types who are so anxious to believe that the reason why everybody gets divorced is because they're just selfish and impatient. But you know what? That is not always the case. It's not. Jesus says clearly, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now hold that thought for a second. Now that doesn't mean much to us at all. Well, so what? Oh, I'm committing adultery. Whatever, I'm going to be happy. Yeah, but see, in that culture, Jewish people would have known that adultery carries a death penalty. You know this. And so what Jesus is saying is, it's going to take a death of the covenant, something as bad as adultery itself, to avoid the death that you're going to bring in your life if you divorce for superficial reasons. Okay? This is what I mean. When Paul takes up this exact same topic in 1 Corinthians 7, he describes a situation in Corinth where there were lots of converts to Christianity who found themselves married to unbelieving spouses. What do they do? Well, Paul said, look, if your partner is willing, stay with them. Why? Well, because your sanctification is good for them. It helps them for you to see you grow in Christ. But if your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, then you don't have to stay. You don't have to stay. And you may divorce and then you may remarry because it is a biblical reason to do so. So now we're seeing a category that's sort of being built out. And I, in the interest of full disclosure, I am in agreement with the scholars who say that at Paul and Jesus' comments, when you take them together, they suggest that one may kill the covenant, not just through the actual physical act of adultery, but also through a pattern of unrepentant and abusive and dangerous behavior. 
They're dangerous to live with. The children are in danger. Now, mind you, I'm not mean, I do not mean that they are annoying. That's not it. It just means that the patterns that the spouse has set out have been egregious enough to actually warrant the dissolution of the marriage. Maybe the period of physical uh, separation is appropriate, a time when people can discern each other's intentions. But let's be clear. There should never be a time when someone lives in fear of harm coming from their own home. And as a newsflash, <laughs> speaking from my own perspective only, if someone pulls a weapon on you in your home, uh, if someone uh, takes a swing at you in your home, if someone has a pattern of physical limitation, ooh, maybe, maybe in their anger they put their fists through a wall of, a, of, of drywall, you're going to have a very difficult time convincing me that that person is not within their rights to vacate that particular house and to seek help. Now look, small little asterisk here at the end of that, because I do hope you understand that that particular route is only possible when you're making these decisions with wise authorities in your life. Come on, any of us can create a scenario that we can warrant enough emotional suffering to get divorced so that I can, you know, get out whenever I want to. Because after all, these friends that I've got over here and told them about, they're on my side too. No, when it comes to these decisions, don't trust yourself. Going to a therapist once, <laughs> uh, reading a book on marriage, that does not constitute the work that it takes to make a hard marriage work. It doesn't. But here's the deal. The blessing of going through this process, again, with wise authority in your life, is that the fears that you have in guarding the intractability of your spouse's lack of repentance can be found to be true. And therefore, you can divorce with an assurance that Jesus warrants you relief from your nightmare without the pattern of guilt. Ricky Jones has said that divorce actually can be a real blessing for those who are being tortured in marriages by unrepentant spouses. It exists. <clears throat> okay, that's the principle. Let's lead to some sort of application here towards the end, right? Because most of us find ourselves in difficult times where we're like, okay, I get it, but what do I do when I'm stuck? I, I've said this before. I, I have learned that there really is no stuck in life like being stuck in a marriage you don't want to be in. It's a difficult spot. And so I thought I'd just throw at least a couple of points of wisdom for you like this. Number one, J.D. Greer has a wonderful uh, sermon on a divorce where he says, look, the first thing Christians need to do is to reject what he calls the right person myth. Okay. Uh, that's people who say, well, you know, uh, marriage is when you get, you got to find the right person. Uh, and if I find that person, great. If I don't, I'll never be happy. Um, and if I'm unhappy in my marriage, it must be that I married the wrong person. <laughs> Well, J.D. Greer looks and goes, look, actually, every one of us married the wrong person. You want to know why? Because you're a sinner and they're a sinner. Uh, and that other person, by the way, is not God. And I realize it's going to sound very non-romantic, but the best that you can hope for in marriage is someone who is less of a bad match for you. Everyone's a bad match. Because the purpose of marriage is not to restore a missing part of your soul. It's not why we get married. We get married because God has given it to us so that we become people who are more like him. And he's the kind of God who loves annoying sinners like you, like us. Now, mind you, no one's saying that you can't be genuine in love with your spouse. I'm thrilled with my spouse. But just don't look in marriage, Jesus is saying, for something that was never designed to give. 
So again, when you're in the difficulty of painful marriages, beware of those thoughts that say, oh, I married the wrong person. Why did I break up with that perfectly nice, perfectly nice girl when I, when I was in college? We nurse those kinds of ideas. Look, here's the deal. Granted, you may have married unwisely. That's possible. But we believe that God redeems everything, don't we? Even my bad decisions. Second thought is this. <clears throat> if you're presently in distress, may I encourage you to begin to widen the circle of the people that know that you're struggling, you and your spouse are struggling? Um, <clears throat> On the one, no, I'm not talking about placarding it, telling every single body your, your personal business. But there are people who, there are people to whom you can go. It might be a counselor, it might be a therapist, it might be a pastor, it might be some some friends who you know are wise that are older than you, maybe have an unusual giftedness in that area. But look, normalize letting people in on that. And again, gentlemen, I'm sorry, this is probably you more than it is your wives. The whole, well, that's none of their business, is not a good posture. What happens in my home is my business. Let our business. That's not the way we do it. To widen the circle means to bring other voices in so that we can get out of the crazy patterns that we're oftentimes in. Frankly, so oftentimes, I talk to my pastor friends about this all the time. Nobody calls the pastor until you're like on your way to the lawyer's office to file papers. Uh, That's not helpful. By that that time, it's oftentimes too late. Begin when the problems and the struggles start, finding someone to help, finding someone to help intervene. Third thought, and I'll finish with this. And it's going to sound really religious to say this. You got to start making the gospel your new favorite topic of study. Look, I want you to act like you have the world's most important final exam in grace and then do whatever you can to go find out about it. Because if you do, you're going to find that Jesus gave his people in his word a little book, a little letter by the prophets called the book of Hosea. There, God tells the prophet to go and marry a prostitute who, who is going to continue to be faithless to him, but he's supposed to be committed to her throughout the whole thing. And of course, the moral of the story is not hard to figure, is it? <laughs> because Jesus is one who knowingly and voluntarily married an unfaithful person. Me. You. But here's what that means. That means that in that sheer mind-bending, mind-blowing fact. Jesus is in in the process of creating this center, (laughs) this unassailable center of grace and acceptance that nobody can touch, not even the circumstances of my difficult marriage right now. And from that well, we are hoping to sort of create a wellspring of places where I can forgive, where I can overlook where I can have the joy of dealing with what oftentimes can be such a mind-bending loneliness, even in one's own marriage. Look, it doesn't diminish the difficulty of broken marriages when we look at how hard it can be. Harrison Scott Key uh, (coughs) wrote The Excruciating. That's the only word I can uh, talk about to describe what it was like to read it. How to Stay Married, uh, which I would cautiously commend to you. But in it, he describes the pain of infidelity He says, in addition to going insane, you're going to feel a pain that transcends all prior uh, experience. Pain without precedent. Pain that burns away the sky. The pain did not make me cry, not yet. The pain did not make me rage and break things, not yet. What the pain did, listen to this, was detach my brain from my spinal column and kick it like a football into new galaxies. 
Everything I knew had to be unknown. Everything I did not know had to be learned. You never realize how much you know until you learn all of it was wrong. The pain of broken marriages, that's the struggle. That's where we are. And yeah, so maybe we're living in these self-expressive marriages, but what if what we decided to express (laughs) was different? What if we decided to express something different? And instead to look and say, no, I'm I'm looking for a spiritual safety that keeps me from being, from thinking that I can't love a difficult to love person. Or maybe the love that makes me realize I have Jesus's imprimatur of getting out of a marriage that is racked by betrayal. One of those two things, because in the midst of it, that unassailable center of the gospel of joy is the one thing that has, that offers out hope for the struggle. It's just what we're going to hear this morning. It's exactly what we celebrate when we come to the table to feed that instinct inside of us. So you have that as an invitation this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you give us grace? Um, Father, I have no idea what's behind the eyes of the people that look at me right now or whatever's going on in people's hearts and minds. Father, without question, I've seen enough difficulty to know that we oftentimes can languish, languish in the midst of hard times. Would you meet us in those places? Father, bring us help. Bring us help by your spirit. Most of all, bring us repentance for both sides. May we stop being defensive about the things that we've done. May we own those things with each other and see the bad patterns that we've established. And maybe, Father, then look back and say, boy, you pulled, us out of, you pulled us out of the darkness. And make trophies, Father. Make this room full of trophies of grace that came in and saved marriages and showed the world that you really are that amazing. Would you do that? But we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.